You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 292, The Dog Days Campaign. We last left the war in the Carolinas back in episode 287, General Nathaniel Green, along with support from militia leaders Thomas Sumter and Francis Marion, had forced the British out of pretty much all of South Carolina except a small area around Charleston. Green and his Continentals were exhausted by this time. They had been on the move almost continuously since March of 1781. By July, the summer heat was becoming oppressive. With the British bottled up in Charleston, Green gave his men a rest in the high hills of Santee. The weather there was a little more bearable, and the local fields provided a food source for the army. As the Continentals recuperated, Militia General Thomas Sumter continued in the field in what would later be called the Dog Days Campaign, taking place during the Dog Days of Summer. Sumter worked with Colonel Francis Marion, as well as Continental Colonel Lighthorse Harry Lee, on this campaign. Although Sumter was in command, these three officers did not really get along well, so coordinating strategy was difficult. Between the three of them, though, the combined force was well over a thousand men. Sumter sought to put more pressure on the outposts that were closer to Charleston, and his first target was a British outpost at Monk's Corner, about 30 miles north of Charleston. Stationed at Monk's Corner were about 600 British regulars, mostly from the 119th Regiment, and about 150 South Carolina Rangers, a group of mounted Loyalist cavalry. On July 16th, Patriot militia moved on Monk's Corner. The British commander there, Colonel James Coates, moved the bulk of his forces into a prepared defensive position at Biggin Church. This was a fortified brick building that was impervious to small arms fire. Sumter deployed his forces around Biggin Church. Later that afternoon, the Loyalist South Carolina Rangers, under Major Thomas Fraser, charged at part of Marion's militia under the command of Colonel Peter Horry. The Patriots withdrew to the covering fire of their comrades, and this forced the Loyalists to end their pursuit and fall back to the main British force at Biggin's Church. Sumter's larger force could surround the church, but it could not charge the fort across an open field without taking substantial casualties. A few units did advance on the church, but were driven back. As he attempted to figure out a plan of attack, Sumter ordered the destruction of nearby Wadbu Bridge to prevent the enemy from having a path of retreat. After night fell, Colonel Coates realized his British forces were outnumbered and resolved to slip away in the night. His men were able to repair Wadbu Bridge enough to move across it. After the bulk of his forces were across the bridge and away, he set fire to the church, burning the building and all of their equipment in the building, 
because they could not move quickly enough while carrying it. Around 3 a.m. on the 17th, Sumter saw the church was on fire. He roused his militia and set off in pursuit of the fleeing British. In his haste to catch the retreating enemy, Sumter left behind his one field cannon, opting instead for speed and knowing the cannon would just slow them up. Coates marched his men through a nearby swamp. He then sent his loyalist horsemen in one direction and marched his regulars in another. The loyalists were able to ride at full speed and get across the Cooper River at a local ferry and remove all the boats to the far side, thus preventing the patriots from following them. The regulars marched toward Quinby Bridge. After crossing, they planned to tear up the bridge to prevent the Americans from pursuing them. Lee's cavalry caught up with the British rear guard before they could reach Quinby Bridge. The 19th Regiment was a newly created regiment with little battlefield experience. The regulars formed a line of defense, Lee's cavalry charged at them, and the British soldiers dropped their muskets without firing and called for quarter, which was granted. The Americans captured about 100 British soldiers. A short distance away at Quinby Bridge, the British commander, Colonel Coates, was unaware that his rear guard had been taken prisoner. He managed to get the rest of his regiment across the bridge, and he began to loosen the planks on the bridge without completely pulling them up. He hoped to allow his rear guard to cross before tearing up the bridge completely. Lee and Marion's cavalry came on the scene and charged at the bridge while the British were not prepared to receive an attack. Colonel Coates desperately tried to form a defensive line on the far side of the bridge. If the Americans had continued their charge across the bridge at this time, they probably would have forced the British to flee or surrender. Instead, though, Captain James Armstrong, who was leading the charge, halted at the near side of the bridge and sent a messenger back to Lee for instructions. His hesitation was probably after seeing a British howitzer at the other end of the bridge. Colonel Lee's angry reply was that Captain Armstrong needed a charge across that bridge now. After receiving Lee's reply, Armstrong charged across the bridge and he even managed to take the howitzer before it could be fired on his men. His charge, however, with the horse's hooves at full gallop had knocked the loosened planks off the bridge, making it difficult for others to follow him. The momentary delay had also given the British time to form lines and begin a defensive fire against these attackers. The British Colonel Coates drew his sword and began fighting for his life against these attackers. Two Continental horsemen were killed, and several more were wounded in the fighting. By this time, Lee had reached the bridge and had his men restoring the planks under enemy fire. The advance force that had crossed the bridge essentially found itself cut off from support and withdrew to a nearby tree line. This gave the British time to rally, grab their howitzer, and continue the retreat. Colonel Coates pulled back to the nearby Quinby Plantation, which is also known as the Shoebrook Plantation. Lee, frustrated that he couldn't cross the bridge and pursue the enemy, found a place to ford the river further upstream. Joined by Marion's militia infantry, the two groups pursued the enemy. They caught up with the British at the plantation, but found it too well defended to attack, so Lee and Marion had to wait for more reinforcements from Sumter. Once Sumter's main force arrived, the combined force was about three times the size of the enemy's. The Americans had about 1,100 men facing 350 British. 
But because the British held a strong defensive position, it was going to be a difficult fight. Nevertheless, Sumter ordered Marion, on the Americans' left, to advance. Enemy fire resulted in five attackers killed and ten wounded before they were forced to pull back. On his right flank, Sumter ordered Lieutenant Colonel Hugh Horry to advance. Horry's advance went about the same as Marion's, losing four killed and six wounded before they were also forced to pull back. Sumter also ordered his main center line to advance. Although this brigade, which was the largest, got within 40 yards of the enemy, they lost seven killed and 20 wounded before also pulling back. What Sumter really needed was his cannon. But since he'd left that behind in order to have the speed to chase the enemy, he found himself without it at this important time. The attacking militia kept up fire on the plantation for 40 minutes to an hour. After that, they began to run out of ammunition, and the rate of fire fell to only a few sporadic shots at the enemy. By dusk, the militia had to withdraw from the plantation altogether. Since they were out of ammunition, they could not risk a nighttime counterattack on their lines. The British had bayonets, the militia did not, so a night attack would have spelled disaster. Sumter tried to find more ammunition for his army and to get the cannon in place by the following morning so they could resume the attack. However, after the failed advances that day, many officers criticized Sumter's orders to attack an entrenched enemy across an open field. Marion's men just left that night, and Marion vowed never to fight under Sumter ever again. Colonel Lee, whose Continental Cavalry had been held in reserve, also left and was disgusted with Sumter's attack. Colonel Thomas Taylor, who had been part of Sumter's centerline advance, directly confronted the general after the battle, outraged that his men had been advanced into enemy fire without promised support. Taylor told Sumter directly that he would never serve a single hour under Sumter ever again. With the loss of much of his force, and after receiving word that a British relief force from Orangeburg was nearby, Sumter called off his planned attack for the following day and withdrew his own forces. Now, even though they failed to capture the full regiment of regulars, the attack was a partial success. The action forced the British to pull closer to Charleston. They managed to capture the British regiment's baggage, which included a regimental payroll of 720 guineas. Sumter divided that money among his South Carolina militia who had remained with him, although this became another point of anger because other units who had fought in the battle did not receive a share of the money. It also set off a demand by other South Carolina militia units to receive their long-overdue back pay. Back in the high hills, General Nathaniel Green received various reports on the battle. Although he publicly praised Sumter's efforts, later confidential correspondence with those he trusted indicated that Green believed that Sumter's weak command prevented what could have been a more decisive victory. Following the battle, General Sumter decided that it was time for him to take a break as well. He tried to do what he could to pay off his army. One of the things he did was he sent Captain William Ransom Davis with a cavalry detachment to raid the Loyalist stronghold at Georgetown with orders to plunder as much Loyalist property as possible in order to have something to pay his men. This not only annoyed Green, who was doing his best to limit civilian plundering, it also further distanced Marion from Sumter since Georgetown was in Marion's area of control. 
After settling the accounts as best he could, Sumter retired to his North Carolina plantation. Although he did not disband the army, when Colonel William Henderson came to take command, he found that its numbers had fallen to less than 200 men, and he then received written orders from Sumter, who was already gone, that Henderson should furlough the rest of the army until October. When General Greene heard about this, he was apoplectic. With the British finally hemmed in around Charleston, Sumter was essentially disbanding his army for a few months. With Sumter's South Carolina soldiers going home, Green would be the only real out-of-state troops, the Continental Army, and they, although the largest presence, were not nearly enough to oppose the British. Fortunately, Colonel Marion and his smaller band of militia did remain in the field. Green requested that Marion join with what remained of Sumter's brigade and move south of Charleston. They had received intelligence that the British were collecting rice from coastal fields there to feed the Charleston garrison, and that they planned to burn whatever crops they could not carry back with them. Marion took about 200 men on horseback, where he met up with a group of local militia under Colonel William Hardin. He was soon joined by another local militia under Colonel William Stafford, bringing his total force to around 400. On August 27th, Marion attempted to set up an ambush at a place called Godfrey's Savannah. At this point, the enemy consisted of a regiment of Hessians under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Ernst Leopold von Bork, some loyalists under Major Thomas Fraser, who had been at the Battle of Quinby's Bridge, a detachment of Queen's Rangers, and another group of loyalists under Major William Bloody Bill Cunningham. In total, the enemy had about 660 men. Although the Patriots were outnumbered, Marion believed that a surprise ambush would give him the advantage. Unfortunately, the Patriot militia was not as experienced as hoped, and the attempt to attack on the 27th didn't happen because they could not get into position in time. Even so, Marion was determined to organize another ambush. After a few days, he was able to get his men in position along a wooded area of the road near Parker's Ferry, about 25 miles west of Charleston. Marion knew that the enemy would be passing this way shortly. Late in the afternoon of August 30th, a party of about a hundred Loyalist militia came down the road. Marion hoped to let this group pass so that he could attack a larger force behind them. However, one of the Loyalists marching down the road spotted the enemy in the bushes. The Loyalists opened fire, and the Patriots returned fire. The Loyalists rushed back toward the ferry, and the British cavalry, that was at some distance away, charged toward the sound of the gunfire. As the Patriots fired on the enemy, they suddenly got spooked that they were being flanked, and they rushed back into the woods. This gave the British time to recover their equipment and wounded from the initial ambush and make a decent withdrawal. The Hessian regiment arrived at the battle just as it was getting dark. Even so, the Patriots managed to get behind the Hessians and attacked the Loyalist cavalry in the enemy's rear. The enemy then had to withdraw down a road that was lined with Patriot militia, resulting in them essentially having to run a gauntlet of enemy fire and taking heavy casualties. So the ambush worked. The Patriots had the clear advantage, but with night having arrived and running out of ammunition, Marion had to order the Patriots to withdraw. The result of the battle, though, was extremely one-sided. The British lost about 125 killed and another 80 wounded. 
The Loyalist horsemen also lost most of their horses as they were shot out from under them. The Patriots lost one killed and three wounded. While this was all happening, General Greene was doing a whole number of things, but he was one of the things he was doing was trying to reestablish civilian government in Georgia. As always, he had to deal with lots of interference that made his job more difficult. Earlier in 1781, Greene had sent a man named Nathan Brownson to Philadelphia. Brownson was a Connecticut physician who had moved to Georgia in 1774 and quickly became a leader in the Patriot movement. He had served as a local delegate in Georgia and had also spent some time representing Georgia in the Continental Congress. Given his medical and administrative skills, Greene wanted Brownson to serve as the purveyor for the hospital department in the South. Green gave him the job provisionally, but sent him to Philadelphia to get final approval from Congress. Brownson made his way to Philadelphia, where he found Congress receptive to his appointment. In fact, many delegates quite liked the physician-slash-politician who used his time in Philadelphia to update the delegates about the war in the South and share his own opinions on strategy. The Georgia delegates to the Continental Congress thought so highly of him that they gave him an appointment to be a general in the Georgia militia. General Brownson returned to South Carolina in July to announce to Green his new appointment as general. Green was, shall we say, less than enthusiastic. While Brownson was a fine politician and no doubt a good physician, he had almost no military experience. Meanwhile, other Georgia militia colonels, such as Elijah Clark, John Twiggs, and James Jackson, all had considerable combat experience and a good following of soldiers, and they were finding themselves passed over by this guy who just went up to Congress and got himself a political appointment. It's unclear why Georgia delegates to the Continental Congress even believed that they had authority to appoint militia generals. Typically, that would be something done by the president of Georgia. I guess since the Georgia government was essentially not functioning at the time, they felt like they could do whatever they wanted. The president of Georgia in 1781 was actually kind of a matter of dispute. Stephen Hurd had been appointed president in 1780. Hurd had been a strong patriot during the early part of the war. He had been captured while leading a militia regiment at Kettle Creek in 1779. After his capture, he had been taken to Augusta, where he was sentenced to hang for treason. He only survived thanks to one of his slaves, who we only know by the name Mammy Kate. She visited him in prison with the purpose of bringing him new clothes. Apparently, Mammy Kate was a large woman, and Hurd was rather small. She managed to fit him inside a laundry basket, which she put on her head and then walked out of the prison. Hurd managed to make his escape, returned to the Patriot lines, and at some point after that received his appointment as president of Georgia. Now, perhaps his brush with death took away some of his nerve, because at some point, Heard simply fled to the Carolinas and did not return to Georgia. So another leader, Myrick Davis, ended up as the acting president of Georgia. I can find almost nothing on Davies, so I have to assume that he wasn't doing much governing, and this is understandable since much of Georgia was under British control, and to the extent the Americans had control, it was primarily military. General Greene had no contact with Georgia's Governor Hurd nor acting Governor Davies. Greene had gotten in trouble in the past when he questioned civilian control of the military, 
So he really wasn't sure what to do about the decision by the Georgia delegation to the Continental Congress appointing Brownson as a general of the Georgia militia. Green had a candid conversation with Brownson when the two men met at Green's camp in South Carolina. The details of the conversation are not recorded, but Green must have discussed his concerns with Brownson over being given command over other officers who had fought bravely in the field for years and how this appointment might be a problem. Publicly, in his letters, Green wrote to the other military leaders from Georgia, passing along that the congressional delegation had made this appointment and withholding any opinion on the fact for or against. He sent this letter with Brownson himself, who he had go speak to the other Georgia militia officers and make his case. As expected, the other military officers were not happy about this situation. Brownson's lack of any real military command experience was glaring, and they all viewed him correctly as a political appointment. While the leaders tried to sort out this problem, an unexpected opening occurred when acting President Davies was captured and executed by loyalists. With President Hurd still missing from the state, leaders decided to make Brownson the new president of Georgia and have him give up his militia commission. Colonel John Twiggs was made the new militia brigadier and was accepted as a much better choice by the other leading officers. With Georgia patriots finally restoring civilian control of the government and South Carolina militia slowly tightening the noose on the British in Charleston, the British occupation in the South was looking increasingly desperate. Next week, we're going to take a look at the British leadership in Charleston as they deal with the controversial matter of Isaac Hayne. This episode is supported by Factor. Let's face it, preparing good and healthy meals is a lot of work. As a result, I often end up eating just junk food. Factor offers a better solution. You can get pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. You'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from, including keto, calorie smart, vegan, plus veggie, and more. It's going to be less expensive than takeout, and since it's pre-delivered, it's already home waiting for you when you get there. The meals are 100% ready to heat and eat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed, and you can schedule the number of meals each week that works for you. Best of all, it tastes good and is good for you. As a special deal for listeners of the American Revolution podcast, you can go to factormeals.com ARP50 and use the code ARP50 to get 50% off. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first order. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Salentano, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Patrick LeBeau, Kurt Avard, and Anthony McGinnis. I'm most grateful for everyone who helps support this show via an ongoing contribution. It's made it possible for me to keep this podcast going. For those of you who don't like the commitment of an ongoing contribution, I also appreciate one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo that also help support this podcast. You can find links to Patreon or PayPal and Venmo 
on my blog and website. For more, go to www.amrevpodcast.com. And we had a great live event last week on Zoom to celebrate the 250th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. We're going to hold another Zoom event in January, and if you want to be notified about these events, please join my mailing list. There's a form on my website for doing just that. Again, www.amrevpodcast.com. This week we covered some of the major skirmishing in South Carolina in late summer 1781. General Sumter kept up an aggressive push against the enemy, even as the brutal summer heat took its toll. As I said in the main show, Sumter did not get along with Francis Swamp Fox Marion, nor with Light Horse Harry Lee. Following these battles, the division between these men grew even worse. And it seems like Sumter decided after Quinby Bridge that he had had enough and would take some time off away from the war by going to North Carolina. Although Sumter was a South Carolinian and had most of his lands in South Carolina, he did own a plantation in North Carolina, which was much farther away from the enemy at this time. Sumter's decision to move to North Carolina at this time would result in him missing out on the last large battle that took place in South Carolina, the Battle of Utah Springs, something I'm going to be covering in an upcoming episode. Sumter, however, would return later in the fall to continue his efforts to push the British out of South Carolina. My book recommendation this week is The Road to Charleston, Nathaniel Green and the American Revolution by John Buchanan. This is a book that was first published in 2019, and I've recommended another book by Buchanan in a past episode, The Road to Guilford Courthouse. I've relied on both of these books for many of the episodes that deal with the war in the South. The Road to Charleston picks up where The Road to Guilford Courthouse finishes. The book gives much more detail on the subjects that, of course, I cover in my podcast. So if you want to read more about the later part of The War in the South, this is the book you will want. Check out The Road to Charleston. My online recommendation is, once again, an older book. The title is not particularly gripping. It's called Memoirs of the War in the Southern Department of the United States. The thing about this book is that it describes the events by someone who was actually there. The author is Light Horse Harry Lee. In 1812, Lee published this book, which focuses on his time in the South during the Revolutionary War. It's an important source for most people studying this era. If you do read it, you have to keep in mind that Lee wrote this book decades after the fact, when he was trying to revive his reputation and his finances after spending a few years in debtor's prison. Even so, Lee was an eyewitness to the events I've been discussing in the Carolinas recently, so it's nice to have someone writing who actually lived through these events. The link I've provided to this book is to the second edition of the memoirs, which was published in 1827, after Lee's death. There's also a third edition of the book, published in 1868, which was edited and includes a preface by Lee's son, Robert E. Lee. Lee created this updated edition while he was serving as president of Washington College, Sadly for Civil War buffs, Lee died a year after this, meaning that he never was able to write his own memoirs about his time in the Civil War. As always, I've included links to Light Horse Harry Lee's memoirs on my website and on the blog entry for this episode. Now my question this week asks, 
I've heard about colonial leaders being described as new lights. What does this mean, and does it relate to the revolution? Well, not directly. The term new lights and old lights refers to a religious division between Protestants that took place as a result of the Great Awakening in the 1740s. The Great Awakening coincides with the Age of Enlightenment, but I don't really consider it part of the Enlightenment. When I'm referencing the Great Awakening, I'm referring to something that most people today call the First Great Awakening to distinguish it from the Second Great Awakening that took place after U.S. independence. The First Great Awakening took place in the 1740s. Put simply, most religious leaders of the time took a very traditional view of religion. That idea was that if you were good, you went to heaven, and if you were bad, you went to hell, so be good for goodness sake. Some preachers were attempting to break away from this more traditional idea, and New England preacher Jonathan Edwards is usually held up as the main example of this. They preached that all of us are sinners and could never live up to God's standards. Our only hope for salvation was to seek the mercy and forgiveness of God, and this would only happen through repentance and rebirth. Edwards's ideas on this topic are probably best expressed in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, those who agreed with this concept that was voiced well by Edwards are called New Lights. These New Lights wanted a very emotional experience to be associated with religion. They called on adult Christians to be reborn by going through a baptism experience and devoting themselves to God as adults once again. It was a very powerful form of evangelical Christianity and defined by preachers who often traveled and held very large events where they called on people to redevote themselves to Jesus and Christianity. Of course, many religious leaders rejected this approach. Ministers like the Reverend Charles Chauncey, for example, believed that this was dangerous. Visiting preachers who like to swoop into an area and get everyone riled up about religion and then move on without tending to the continuing needs of the flock. It simply stirred up emotions, terrorized people about some threats of eternal damnation without really guiding them toward good Christian behavior. Worse, they were fomenting religious division in communities by convincing some parishioners to think differently about religion than the rest of the community. These ministers, and those who followed them, were called Old Lights. The division between Old Light and New Light Protestants greatly impacted New England for many decades following. These same disputes and divisions also took place in England itself, as well as some parts of what is today Germany. And this really was a religious dispute, not a political one. It was not about changing governments or even about Enlightenment rationalism in religion. Even so, the New Light movement was considered radical to many, and some have argued that it contributed to the idea in New England that it was okay to question authority. New Lights questioned many social norms of the time, and the movement also led to large religious gatherings, which people seemed to enjoy, and again, which some historians argue contributed to later participation in mass political protests. So, I don't think the Old Light-New Light division contributed directly toward the movement that moved toward independence, but it was an indication that the people of New England were restless and ready to question authority. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. 
Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, wherever you get podcasts.